Father, we just thank you so much for uh, the new mercies that you promised to give us each morning. We renew the mercy day by day. And we present ourselves to you this morning, Lord. We desire to be that living sacrifice that you accept and that you have made holy by the blood of your Son. And we just lay down every part of our life, our mind, our heart, our, our motives, our uh, our actions, our families, our jobs, our uh, our past and our future. Lord, we put it all down at your feet, and we ask that you would um, that you would draw near to us this morning in the Word of God and in fellowship here. We pray, Lord, that you would stir stir us that that um, that we would be inspired to to want to follow you, to want to be consecrated more unto you, and that you would reveal yourself to us. And so we pray, Father, for that and ask you to touch the word and touch our hearts, Lord, that we would be able to apply it and see ourselves in it and, um, and that we would be changed, truly transformed into the image of your Son and that our lives would, would take the, the shape that you have designed them to, to take, Lord. And so we just thank you so much for this time that you've called us aside and, and how we ask, Lord, that our lives would bear much fruit that we wouldn't just call ourselves Christians, that we wouldn't be church people, but but that we would truly be disciples and that you would take delight in us, Lord. And so we uh, just give ourselves to you and we give you this time and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Take any, any prayer requests, anything going on that we can keep lifted up throughout the week. Work for Dave. You've only been out for 20 months? Pray for that right now. Anything else? Alright, Lord, we, we just pray for, for this. Lord, you said that... Uh, that you would feed the sparrows, and you said that we're of much greater value than that. And, and so, Father, I pray for Dave and uh, also for Bob, Lord. We pray that you would just let them let their number be called, Lord, and, and that you would continue to provide work for them, Lord, that, that, uh, uh, that they would be just shown your favor and your grace. Lord, we, we lift up any of the other men in our church, Lord, that are, are under that same weight right now. We ask that you would just show yourself strong on behalf of your people. Amen. All right. Well, you can open in your Bibles to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 16. motivation behind any purpose is always what validates or vilifies that purpose. When our kids come to us and look at us with puppy dog eyes and say, I love you, Dad, it always turns on that check engine light inside that begins to wonder, okay, what do you want? And all of a sudden, the motives come into question. <laughs> Why is it that this is being said or that that is being done? And, and it's a question that we ask ourselves many times daily when we face different circumstances, when we hear things that are spoken to us or observe things that happen around us. The question of motive is always at the root of every action, and it either validates or vilifies the thing that is being done. Now, Let's take that same principle and apply it to the call of Christ on men when he says, come and follow me. What's the motive that Jesus has when he talks to someone, a man or a woman, or speaks into your life, and he says, come and follow me? What is it that he wants? What's the motive behind that call? When people saw Jesus during the time that he walked on earth, when he was God incarnate in human flesh. 
They saw something in him that they had never seen in any person before. I mean, even centurions, seasoned, hardened men that had been face to face with politics and with corruption and, and with every different type of situation, th they looked and they said, no one has ever spoken like this man before. There was something so separate about him that there, there, there was nothing to compare it to. They could never say, well, this reminds us of, uh, of something that we read about in a poetry book or in a history book. or At any time, there was never anything that was quite like what people saw when they looked at Jesus. There was no outward magnificence that, that attracted them to him visibly. There was no uh, sense of royalty. He, he certainly didn't give the emanation of a religious leader. They, they had that coming out of their ears, you know, the high hats and the robes and the smell of the incense and, the, you know, the high and holy hover as they would walk. And, you, you know, they, they were, they, that's not what they got from Jesus. You know, it wasn't his personality. It wasn't that he was kind of a type A uh, kind of guy that they, they resonated with. There was nothing. He was outwardly absolutely normal. His appearance, his everything. But yet, there was yet something that was inward. There was this inward, invisible quality. And there was something that resonated deep underneath, deep inside the soul of man, there was almost something that was quickened or made alive that man didn't even know existed. That when Jesus was around, whether he was speaking or whether he was just standing there, there was something that drew people to him that was different than anything that they had ever seen before. There was an awakening, a stirring in the part of the soul that, that man didn't even know existed. There was a fire in his eyes that emanated grace, and there was a safety and a comfort about it. When he spoke, there was life in his voice. His words, though they weren't spoken eloquently and though they weren't, you know, spoken charismatically, yet when he spoke, it, it pierced. It went beyond the emotions and it, and it reached the spirit of man deep within, deep inside. It was, it was real. It was life-giving. He said, my words are spirit and they are life. They could observe in Jesus that he had a deep and unshakable there was this bedrock stability in his person, and it was just unlike anything they had ever experienced in the total package of who he was, apart from anything that was outward or portrayed in an image, it drew people to him. When he would walk through a village, you couldn't get into the street. When he would go into a home, you couldn't get near the place. And it was something there that they had never seen before, and they knew that there was something about him. Now, now, when they saw him, his word to them was, come and follow me. He said, follow me. And we've observed that Peter and Andrew, they left their nets, and they went immediately and they followed him. He spoke it to Peter or James and John, who were in the boat, mending the net with their father. He said, come, follow me. And immediately they left their net, they left their father, and they followed him. And, and you got to wonder and ask yourself, well, what was, what was the motive? Why? why? Why was he calling them? What did he want? And there was something there where you get the sense that they understood that Jesus wasn't calling them to a political persuasion. He wasn't calling them to, you know, a, an outward circumstance. They weren't joining a coalition. It wasn't militia. That there was something that he was calling them unto that was different than any other calling that had ever been placed upon their life before. Somehow they knew, without being told, without reading the contract or examining the fine print, they knew that when he was calling them, he wasn't calling them for something they would do for him, but rather he was calling them into something that he was going to do for them. They knew that this thing was going to change their lives and that it would be forever. And they understood that his intent and his desire in calling them to himself was to impart to them the life that he himself had. That it wasn't just that they had the privilege of being around someone who had that quality of life. 
but that his motive, his desire, was to impart that same gift, that same quality of life unto them. That's what he was calling them unto. And that's the motivation behind why Jesus still calls people to follow him. It isn't about what we're going to do for him. It's about what he promises to do in us. And his desire is that we would experience the same thing that people saw when they looked at him. That people realized, that they understood, that resonated with them, that we would possess that same life. And that's what he's seeking to form in us as we become his disciples. The Apostle John sums this up. Keep a finger. You don't have to turn there if you want to just listen, but I'll read it to you. It's in 1 John, and and the Apostle John sums this up in in such an incredible way in just the opening paragraph of 1 John, the letter that John wrote. It's towards the end of the New Testament. But he he says this. It's 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, and he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. And then he says in verse 3, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. How many times, you know, have, have, have you and I been persuaded by someone or by something and, and, you know, we, we give ourselves to following it, you know, whether it's a career path or a political persuasion or, or anything else in this world that we can follow. But then once we get in there and, and we look at it and we examine it and our hands handle it and we hear it and, and we begin to perceive what it is, what's underneath the facade comes to the light and we're like, oh, okay, yeah, now we get it, right? And this is what John is saying to us here. He's saying we were called by him. We saw him, and we understood that there was something that was deep, something that was real. Then we got in there, and he said we looked at it. When he says we looked upon it, it means that that they examined it through and through. Our hands have handled it. We've put our hand to this thing. We've tested it. We've tried it out. We've done everything that can can possibly be done to, to experience and uncover what this thing is that came from Jesus Christ. And this is our declaration, is that life has been manifested in us. And that our calling is to fellowship with Christ and with the Father. And that now we have this glorious privilege of experiencing age-abiding life and then also giving it away to someone else. That our fellowship is with him and his inheritance is with him. Life is life. And, and that's what John is declaring in 1 John chapter 1. It's what he was called into when Jesus said, follow me. And as we look at John chapter 17 this morning, it's a classic passage of scripture. If you have a red letter Bible, you'll notice that the whole chapter essentially is in red letters because it's all spoken by Jesus. And what this chapter is, is what is known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. The whole chapter is a prayer that Jesus prayed just prior to going to the cross. Have you ever eavesdropped on someone's prayer? Have you ever you know, been in, in, a, in a separate room where in the next room someone else is praying. There's something that happens when you hear someone else pray, not in a public setting like this where you're expected to pray, but where someone is praying and they maybe don't know that you're listening. It, it's very intimate. It's very personal. It's, it's almost uncomfortable. Even if I hear my wife pray, you know, I, that my first tendency is I, be, I just want to get away. Like, I, I feel like I'm listening in on someone else's conversation and because God is half the conversation, I can't get away with it. You know, and it's this uncomfortable thing. But if I wanted to know what was going on in my wife's heart, 
wanted to know maybe what, what she was thinking about, what was, you know, stewing in there, you know, maybe things that she wasn't sharing with me. A good way for me to find out what's going on in the deepest parts would be to eavesdrop on her prayer time. Because when you hear someone's prayer, you know what's going on in their heart. And what we have here in this chapter is Jesus praying, and we are privy to understand the dialogue, to hear what it is that he prayed about. And and in so doing, because he's praying for us, what we discover is the motive, really, behind why he calls us. What does he want to do in our lives? Why does Jesus look at you and me and say, follow me? Why does he ask us to take up our cross daily and deny ourselves? Why does he ask us to die to self and crucify our flesh? Why does he ask us to do things that are contrary to our human nature and sometimes, some cases, quite difficult to do? Why does he ask us that? What does he want? As we look at John chapter 17, we come into a realization. And and, and really, there's many layers here. You could pick this thing apart for weeks and and see everything that's in it. But what I want you to see this morning is two things. First of all, five things in this prayer that Jesus has given us. There's five things in here where he says, I have given them, which means that these are things we already possess. That at the moment we give our life to Christ, he gives us. These five things, they are in this prayer. And then there are six things that he prays for us. So five things were given and six things he asks. And they reveal for us what it is that he desires to do, why it is that he calls us to follow him. So what are these things? What are the five things? Well, let me start with something else first. What is it that drove Jesus? Because if you were to tell someone to follow you, I hope you're going somewhere, right? (laughs) I mean, if we're going to follow someone, we hope that they're going somewhere, that they're not just walking around aimlessly. And, And so there's something else that's revealed in here first, and that is Jesus reveals where he's going. Where are we following him? He tells us there in, well, let's just read the first five verses. The answer is in verse five, but notice this. It says, these words spake Jesus, and he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. This is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And here it is, verse 5. He says, and now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before The world was. Those are haunting verses, in a sense, if you really let them sink in and understand them. As you consider the life of Christ upon this earth, the Bible says that he was tempted in all points, like we are, yet without ever giving in to a single one of those temptations. What was it that drove Jesus to fight back every temptation that this world could throw at him? We see Jesus, that he was unmoved by the prospect of power or fame or authority. Over and over again, we see Jesus, when they would come and desire to make him a king, he would just draw himself away and seek the Father alone. He's unmoved by those things that drive many of us. He was never sidetracked by a pursuit of wealth or going after a career, or having status, or having possessions. None of those things ever moved him, but here in verse 5, what's revealed to us is the one desire that Jesus had. The one thing that did move him. The one thing that motivated everything else that he did, and, and that he was unshaken from. He could not be deterred from this one desire, and that was to be back in the presence of the Father with the glory that he had from before the world. 
And for us to understand, having never seen that, because we haven't, none of us know what that is. But we know the power of temptation here on earth. We know the strength of the pursuits that this world can draw us into. We see for, we hunger for, sometimes, not always, the power, the authority, the prestige, the fame that this world can throw at a person. We understand the power of those things. But yet none of us understand the power of what Jesus was desiring, what he knew, what he was going after. And yet the strength of what Jesus wanted was such that nothing in this world could deter him, even for a moment. That there could be no temptation, nothing on this planet that could even hold a candle to that which he wanted, to that which was his desire. Do you see there? That when Jesus says, come follow me, that's what he's leading us to. It's above this world. It's beyond what this world can give. And so that's where we're following. That was his desire. Now, what are the five things that he's given to us? First of all, in verse 2, he has given us eternal life. Look again there in verse 2. It says, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Now, the word eternal there means age abiding or everlasting. And oftentimes we think of that in the context of heaven. But that begins at the moment we die. Ironic, right? Eternal life begins at the moment we die. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that when we give our lives to Christ and we're born again, that right then we pass from death to life. Which means that this isn't something that we will be given at a future point when we pass from this earth, but it's something that we have been given already, that you and I are possessors of age-abiding life or everlasting life. Now, here's the weight of that, because you say, well, that's fine, I understand that, but it still doesn't mean anything until we get there. No, no, that's not true. Because everlasting life doesn't speak of a quantity of time, but it speaks about a quality of what we have. It's a quality of life. It is eternal in duration, but it is rich and abundant in what it is. That's what he's given to us. We know about life on earth. How long does life on earth last? Well, in in quantity, you know, you might have 70, 80, 90 years, but what about in quality? The quality of this life on earth is completely fleeting. It has nothing to give. You know, we know what it's like to, you know, get a new car, right? Or a new house or a new job or some, and, and there can be this incredible stirring inside. You get real excited. You know, you bring it home, the brand new car, and you put it in the garage. And I mean, it's, it's man, it's just shines, it glimmers, even under the hood. You know, the, everything is armor all. The tires are shiny. The rims are sparkling. And you have it in there, and you wake up that first morning. It's yours. You have the keys, and you sit down, you look at it. You sit in it. Look in your room. You see the armor all dash. You're like, this is awesome. Your kids get in it. You're like, wipe your feet. Wipe, wipe your feet. <laughs> you know, your wife gets in it. You would be, could you put your feet down? I mean, you don't. <laughs> you know, and, and it's like that, right? Let me ask you, how long does that last? <laughs> a couple days, right? You know, you get a little, you get a little revival of it after you wash it the first time. You know, for a couple hours or something like that. But how long does it last? And then it's just part of life, part of what you have. Yep. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> because this life doesn't give us quality. It, 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 there, there's highs, there's peaks, there's some things in it that, that, you know, sometimes are an enjoyment to us, but it doesn't last. It's not lasting. But the quality of the life that we have in Christ is everlasting. It doesn't fade and get old. It doesn't doesn't wax dim it grows brighter and brighter the bible says that the hope of this world is perishing but the hope of the world to come is ever increasing in glory ever brightening this earth but that hope is what it's given to us age abiding life is given to us that is ours already it's yours in his hands for the taking 
The second thing that he tells us that he's given to us is in verse 6, and that is this, that he's given us the Father's name. Verse 6, it says this. He says, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept thy word. He's manifested the Father's name. Now, in the Bible, the name of something always defines the nature of it. We see that throughout the Old Testament, that when the patriarchs would name their children, the names were significant and often prophetic, speaking of what they would be or what they would become or what they were. And that's true throughout the Bible, and that is why the names of God scripturally are what they are, because they don't just speak of a title, they speak of his character or his nature. Now, the disciples of Christ were all Jewish men, and they knew the name of God before Jesus came. In other words, Jesus, who who is saying to them, I gave them your name, really, they already knew the name. They could say, yeah, El Roy, El Shaddai, Adonai, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Tzidkenu, El Roy, you know, or whatever. They could go down there, Jehovah Ra. And they knew the names of God, and they knew what they meant. The Lord is my provider. The Lord is my fighter or my banner. The Lord is my righteousness. The Lord is my shepherd. And and they knew all of the names. They, They didn't need Jesus to tell them the name of God. So what does it mean when Jesus said, I have manifested thy name? It means that it went further than the information part of knowing what his name was to the impartation of experiencing what those things that they got from Christ. See, my, my dad, he could look at me, my earthly father, and he could say, I am your provider. And I would say, yep. He could say, I'm your shepherd. I protect and feed you. And I'd say, yep. He'd say, I'm your banner. I fight for you. And I would have to say, yep. And, and, and all of the things that God claims about himself, my earthly dad could claim. And I would have to say, yep, 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 to all those things. But yet there's a vast difference between my earthly father and my heavenly father. And so what Jesus is saying to them is this. He's like, yeah, maybe you knew the name and you could define the word, what it means. But when you've seen me, you've seen the father. That's what Jesus said to Philip. Philip said, show us the father and it will suffice us. And Jesus said, Philip, have I been so long a time with you and you don't know who I am? If you have seen me, you have seen Jesus did is that he took personality with all of those personal traits that are listed here. That they would see Jesus, they would touch and handle and examine who he was, they would be with him, and they would understand what it meant to take him at his word. The Lord is my provider. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord is my shepherd. Jehovah Tzidkenu, the Lord is my righteousness. And it went from the informational part of the mind to the experiential part of the heart. And that came from Christ. That's what Jesus did. He manifested who the Father was. He gave us a picture of who the Father is. And that's something that we have. In Christ, we understand who God is. I have manifested thy name. The third thing that he's given us in verse 8, he says, my Father's word. In verse 8, he says, for I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them and have surely known that I came out from thee and have believed that thou didst send me. One of the most priceless treasures that you and I possess is the word of God. And that we've been given the word of God. And that the presence and power of the Holy Spirit within us helps us understand and apply the word of God. Jesus said, the words are spirit and the words are life. He's given them to us. What an incredible treasure that we have, uh, this, this word that builds us up and changes our lives, feeds us. The fourth thing in verse 13 that he has given us, he tells us there in verse 13, look at that. He says, and now I come to thee, and these things speak I in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So he's given us, next, his joy. Now, I talk to Christians, and they say, I don't know the joy of the Lord. 
I don't have the joy of the Lord. He's, Jesus is saying, I've given it, but I don't have it. And I think oftentimes the reason why a Christian doesn't experience the joy of the Lord is because they fail to recognize where the joy of the Lord is. Where was Jesus joy? It says, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. See, the joy of the Lord isn't found in the same way that the joy of the world is found. The joy of the world comes by indulging self. The joy of the Lord is found by denying self. The supernatural joy that we have, but in order to experience it, we must follow the footsteps laid out for us. To take up the cross. To put others' needs before our own needs. To desire and seek after the Father's will as opposed to our own will. When we give ourselves to those things, it's in it, in that, that we experience his joy. See, that's where his joy is. He's given it to us, and he's told us how to experience it. Faith will do it. It happens. And then the fifth thing that he says that we have been given in verse 22 is his glory. Look at verse 22. He says, and the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, this glory that he's speaking of in verse 22 is different than the glory he was speaking of back in verse 5. Remember in verse 5 when he said, glorify thou me with the glory which you know I had with you from before the world was? That's different than what he's talking about in verse 22 when he says, you know, I have given them this glory. The word glory in the Hebrew, when it was used, the word is kabod, and it means weight or substance. And that's what he's speaking of in verse 22, is that he has given us the substance, the weight, the glory of God, the presence of God, that, that our lives now bear substance. Whereas before they were fleeting, they were empty, they were shifting, they, 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 were, they, they were listless, there was no purpose behind it. Now there's an anchor in our soul, there's something of substance, there, there's a light that's there that isn't from us, but comes only from the Spirit of God that comes from the presence of God that's within us. And he's given that to us. Every one of us possess the glory of God to some degree in that context. But if you're a child of God, then you have the light of God that is within you. And therefore, there is a weight and a glory. There's something about you that when the unbelieving world looks at you, they say there's something different. There should be. That's what he's talking about when he says, I've given you the joy. So five things he's given us. He's given us eternal life. He's given us the Father's name. He's given us the Father's word. He's given us his joy. And he's given us his glory as a substance to give us. Now, what are the things that he prays for us? Now, it's interesting to consider this, is that there are things that he's given us, and then there's things that he prays for us. That should raise an automatic question in our mind. Is that why are some things given automatically and some things are prayed for? I mean, we're talking about Jesus, right? So why doesn't he just give us the things that he's praying for us? Why does he pray for us? And here's why is because we have a part to play in that list. The first list, he gave, he imparted. It's ours. This list, it's a prayer life because there's a part for us to play. What are they? In verses 9 through 16, the first thing that he prays for us is that we would be kept from the world. Look at verse 9. He says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, when he says the world, he's talking about the, you know, the world system, the system of this world that we're in, not the, you know, the matter, the earth, but rather the system of this world. He says, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for thine, or for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, 
except for the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou should keep them from the evil, or the evil one, more accurately. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So the first petition or prayer that Jesus makes for you and I is that we would be kept from the world, the world system. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 say this. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Isn't that interesting? The Bible puts everything that this world system is composed of into one of three categories. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. The things that we see that we're drawn after, the things that we desire that we're drawn after, or power, you know, authority, prestige, boasting, you know, those things that, that trigger the pride of man. And all that is in the world falls under one of those three banners. And he says, you know, that uh, he says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and these things are not of the Father, but they are of the world. And he's saying that the world is passing away with its affections and its lusts. But he that doeth the will of God will abide forever. And that's what John wrote in 1 John. And here Jesus is praying that we would be kept from the world. And the world is powerful, isn't it? The temptations, the lusts of our flesh and the lusts of our eyes, the pride, all of those things that Jesus resisted, they have a pull on us. And here Jesus prays that we would be kept from being swept up in the current of those things that plague our We have a part to play because we choose where we yield ourselves. We choose if we're going to give in to those things. We choose what throne we're going to bow down before or surrender to. He doesn't force us. God will never impose his will upon our lives. He'll give us opportunity to avoid temptation. He'll light the path that is the right thing. He'll encourage and help us by his spirit and his word. But ultimately, those choices are with us. If we go the way of the world, then we get the fruit of the world. The world blinds a man. And then the world binds a man. They become slaves to it. And once you become a slave to the world, the world grinds the soul. And we become discouraged and swept up in the current. The pages of scripture are faithful to lay before us the stories the lives of those that were swept up in the current of the world. We talked last week about Samson and Demas and Lot. And there are others. And God would have us to stay pure and that our lives would not be consumed with the things of this world. So Jesus prays for us that we would be kept from that. The second thing, which is tucked into the first thing, is that we would be kept from the evil one. There is a very pure enemy of our souls. The devil is called our adversary. It says he goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. For he goeth about to kill, to steal, and to destroy. He puts men in the crosshairs and seeks to take them down. Jesus would have us to be free from that. Now, the Bible says that Satan is wiser than Daniel. It says that in Ezekiel chapter 28 when it talks about his history and how he became what he became. And it says that he's wiser than Daniel, but what he is is he is a chief analyst. That's what Satan does to us, is that he will watch a man's life, and he will observe a man's weaknesses, and he will strategize as to how to take a man down. And then once he has formed the perfect strategy, he will submit permission of the Father. He cannot act on his own. He'll submit and ask for permission to impose a temptation or to wage a war or to bring an attack. 
And he maybe accepted that request, you know, for the sake of whatever God has for you and I, as we read in the book of Job. Read Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, and you'll understand the process that I'm talking about, you know, that happens there. But God's will for you and I is that we not be given over to the evil one. What Jesus has given us is a safe place to set our lives wherein the wiser than Daniel, the lion goeth about, has no place in it because of the lion. But it's up to us if we're going to heed the words of Christ and abide in the place of safety. He's given us a straight and narrow path that leads to life. If you're in the straight and narrow path, Satan cannot touch you. He cannot touch you. Jesus' prayer for us is that we would abide in that place and that we would be kept from the power of the evil one, which he is able to do. We are not. I personally am not wiser than Daniel. (laughs) But my Lord is stronger than Satan. He's able to keep us from the power of the evil one. He prays that for us. The third thing that he prays is in verse 17, and that is that we would be sanctified. Verse 17, he says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. To be sanctified means to be separated unto God, consecrated, that is completely in belonging to him, And then number three, it means to be completed, is that he would finish the work that he set forth to do in each one of our lives. The moment that we get saved, we we begin this process of sanctification. God separates us, pulling us into his word, performing his work within our hearts, changing us from the inside out. All of that is sanctification. And he will continue that work until the day that he returns or calls us home. That, That work will continue. It's an ongoing process of him separating us, consecrating us, completing what he set forth to do in us. And then he tells us the agent whereby we are sanctified. He says, sanctify them by what? By truth, right? Thy word is truth. The word of God is so important. I hope you know that by now in your Christian walk. The importance of daily reading of the Bible. Moment by moment, meditating on it, living by its principles, applying its precepts to your life in such a way, you know, because it feeds, it builds us up, it sanctifies us, it serves the purpose that God has within us. So he says, he prays for us that we would be sanctified. But again, we have a part to play. Because he's not going to, you know, just download it into our heart or into our mind. But there is a discipline for us disciples to be people of the word. The fourth thing that he prays for is that we would be unified. Look at verse 18. He says, as thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through thy truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that thou hast loved me, or sent me, and hast loved them, as thou hast loved me. Four times in this prayer, Jesus prays that we would be one. Now think about that. In 24 verses, or whatever it is, or 26 verses, four times he prays that we would be one. I would say if someone prays that four times in this many paragraphs, that that's a pretty high priority, yes? If you were eavesdropping on that conversation and you heard that four times, you would know that that's an important factor. That's something that's very important to him. He's speaking about the unity that is to exist between brothers in Christ. That there's to be a unity. And that that unity is to have the same strength as the unity between the Father and the Son. Now what kind of a unity is that? They are one. (laughs) Right? 
They don't look at themselves as separate from the other, but they are one. They are linked. And the bond of that unity is love. And that's the bond that he so desires that he would have, or that we would have with one another, is that there would be that unity. Now, why does he want us to be unified? He tells us there in the text, it's so that the world might believe. Isn't it amazing to think that unity in the church can produce faith in the world? Because that doesn't make sense in the intellect. We would never come up with that one in a board meeting for the church. Well, how can we reach the world? Well, let's crusade. Let's invest some money. Let's start an evangelism program. And we would come up with all kinds of things, but the Bible teaches that unity among brethren produces faith in heathen. Psalm chapter 133. It's very short. Let me read it to you. It says this. It's three verses. Psalm 133. It says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment. That always speaks of anointing. The ointment always speaks of the power of God's Holy Spirit. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garment. As the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. And there is nothing that grieves or quenches the power of God's Holy Spirit more than division and strife in the body of Christ. Unity and love among the brethren and sisters in the church of Jesus Christ is essential for the anointing of God's Holy Spirit to be poured upon church or upon a region that would pour over and produce faith in someone. John chapter 13 verse 15 Jesus said this, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples by your love one for another. Unity is so important to God because it produces faith in those who have faith. It's an impossible task apart from the power of God's spirit and the love of Christ being poured abroad in a heart that he prays for. When you read Acts chapter 2 and you, you know, read about the revival, the outpouring of God's spirit that took place in Jerusalem in the early church, it always tells us in every instance where it talks about people getting saved that the people were like-minded and of one accord. They were of one accord, one mind, they were of one heart, and these would be chosen over and over again But it's not something that's given to us. It's something that we have a part to play in. So we have to yield to it. We have to choose to love the unlovely brother. We have to choose to bring people in that otherwise we wouldn't resonate with. People that are in a different walk of life than we are. People that maybe have a different style than we have. People with other types of personalities than typically we like to be around. Unity is something that must be worked at and noted. Choice to do it, or you receive it as a gift because of Christ, that we would have that, that there would be unity among brethren. He prays for us. That's number four. And then number five in verse 24, that we would be ultimately one day in heaven with him. He prays this. He says, O righteous Father. Actually, verse 24. He says, Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. That's his prayer for us, is that ultimately that would be where we end up. In the presence of his kingdom, beholding his glory in heaven, his exalted and glorified position. And again, that's something that we choose. He doesn't force us into heaven gives us the choice so he prays and then finally God's love in in, uh, verses 25 and 26 he says O righteous father the world hath not known thee but I have known thee and these have known that thou hast sent me and I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them 
capstone of this church is that we would be experiencing the love of God in the person of Jesus Christ. That it would be alive in our hearts. That we would sense it, that we would believe it, that we would experience it, that we would share it. That's God's will. It's God's heart and his desire for our lives. Now, as we conclude, and we consider the calling that he placed upon each one of our lives to be followers of him. The first thing is to just recognize the motive. Why is he calling us? Why does he call us to lay down our lives? Why does he call us to surrender all to him? Why does he call us to take up our cross and to deny ourselves? To give ourselves to the needs of others? And to abstain from worldly and fleshly lusts? His motive, his desire, is that we would experience the same love that he has done. It's not about what we're going to do for him. It's about what he wants to do for us. And the way that we experience that is by taking up the cross and by following him. Father, we just thank you this morning for, for the word. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to meditate upon these things and that we wouldn't uh, quickly drop, Lord, this concept as we go throughout our day, but that you would write it in our hearts you would give us that uh, unction deep inside that what you're calling us to is real. Who you are is real. This life is real. That heaven is real. That the stakes are high. That each one of us, Lord, these men here in this day, part of this church, this region, in our families, in our jobs, in this life that you've called us into, that we, Lord, would hear the call that you've placed upon each one of us to not simply occupy a place in this region, but that we might give our lives completely over into your service. And so we ask you, Lord, to turn the light on inside of us. We ask you to awaken us again as to what is going on, that we would see beyond the surface as you did we'd be unmoved by its affection, by its temptation, that we'd be unhindered by the desire and the pursuit for things that are only temporary, that we would see beyond it into a glory world that would fade away. And so we pray, Lord, that you would inspire new life in us again this morning, that you might give us that completely, and we pray in Jesus' name.